The Rappaport Diamond Podcast is brought to you by the Rappaport Research Report, business intelligence for the diamond industry. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, the podcast that exhibits the most important stories in the industry. I'm your host, David Ehrlich, and today we'll be talking about trade shows. And it's an interesting moment for trade shows in the diamond and jewelry industry. There's still enthusiasm for annual events, and new shows are show opening up every year. At the same time, established international shows in Hong Kong, Las Vegas, and Basel have shown signs that they are facing increased pressure. These days, tightly focused shows are opening up and are drawing crowds with specialized interests and needs. And concerns are rising about the oversaturation of the show market, with exhibitors and attendees more selective than ever about which shows they are going to attend. Perhaps the most striking recent event was Baselworld, the premier show for Swiss watches, which also featured a jeweler's section. Reports from the show had the number of exhibitors drop from 1,500 in 2017 to just 650 in 2018, leaving once-filled exhibition space with now-empty halls. Already, there is another drop expected in 2019 as more contracts with exhibitors expire. And it isn't alone. So are trade shows a dying breed? Or are we seeing their resurgence in a new form? We will also have a conversation about the most recent Sotheby's Hong Kong auction results and the jewelry auction market in general. And Joshua Friedman had a chance to talk with Stanley Zale, Vice President of Diamond and Gemstones at Stuller, about synthetic diamonds. Taking us on a trip around the show floor is Rappaport's editorial team. Editor-in-chief, Sonia Esther-Sultani, is with us today. Hi, David. Hi, Sonia. So you've attended a few shows. Uh, do you have any favorite stories from the show floor? So I have, um, I have a few stories, but one is like when um, my background before joining Rappaport was in travel writing. So I attended a lot, a lot of trade shows for travel. So there was much more food than you get at diamond shows and jewelry. You get all this exotic uh, fruit and the delicacies for each country. But um, the difference is now there's not so much food, <laughs> but you actually see the products. You know, it's not just the pictures. That's, I think, is the, the most interesting thing, that you actually see what our industry is creating and doing and trading on. And um, for me, that was the most interesting thing, especially last year when Carat Plus launched in Antwerp. It was the first year that the show existed, and it was just such a pleasant experience to be able to, within three days, to speak to absolutely everyone. And uh, I would like to thank the Rappaport Antwerp office for putting a lot of nice sweets at their desk as well, at their booth. So even if they told me off a few times for eating too much of it. but <laughs> <laughs> And actually, our, our booth was extremely popular because of that. So it's a little <laughs> tip for show exhibitors, put nice food to, to your booth if you want to attract more people. Joshua Friedman, Rappaport's news reporter, has also seen some of the action from the floor. So Joshua, do you have any tales from your time in the field? I think my, possibly my favorite moment from a, a trade show was actually not inside the trade show, but near the trade show. Our news editor, Avi Kravitz, took me one evening to a, a Chow Tai Fook jewelry store in Hong Kong, uh, where they had a forever mark section. Uh, and Avi went in and uh, pretended he was buying a an engagement ring, and the staff could tell that he looked like someone with uh, with money to spend. And they served us tea, and they showed us various diamonds. And Avi explained to me how uh, Forevermark use the Internet of Things to track which diamonds get picked off the shelves and which diamonds get looked at for how much time, using chips and things inside the boxes. And um, so I think that was my my geeky highlight of my first Hong Kong show. And also here 
Rappaport's publisher, John Costello. John, how have you fared at trade shows to date? I've fared pretty okay. Uh, the same cannot be said of my feet. Uh, I remember the first trade show I was at, the, the word of advice was bring a comfortable pair of shoes and my goodness, you really do need a comfortable pair of shoes. I think JCK last year, I clocked up 15 kilometers, which uh, in old money, uh, in miles, I think that's around nine-ish miles. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're hard on the feet, um, but uh, enjoyable nonetheless. So John, it's interesting that you mentioned JCK, because that's one of the big shows that serves as a bellwether for the industry. And I was hoping to find out a little more about what's been going on at these big trade shows around the world. Well, I think we've seen definitely interest waning and numbers deteriorating in a general sense um, from the big shows. I think Basel World, which you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, has definitely been the, the big kind of uh, show that seen, has seen a huge fall off. And I think uh, a lot of people are realizing uh, that Trade shows are expensive, they're time-consuming, even the very preparation you have to put in. And remember, the diamond and jewellery industry is, is made up of small companies uh, as a general rule. So actually going to a, with one of these trade shows just takes a huge amount of planning and, and really drags and is a big drain on resources. And I know walking around 47th Street talking to uh, you know people on 47th Street and companies, a lot of them are, are giving the big trade shows now or miss or they're very lukewarm and they're really questioning the the return on investment um so yeah you know can basel or any other show bring a buzz back to trade shows and that's a, a big question mark at the moment i mean sonia do you think that you think that's an accurate assessment are trade shows going the way of the dinosaur well, it's a bit extreme, I think, to call them dinosaurs. I think they're still life, but mostly in the new uh, new species of shows. I think, you know, the, the smaller shows, people are moving away from the big, big beasts like uh, like Basel World. And they, they seem to prefer smaller shows where you can actually maybe meet more people that are more targeted, more specialized. That's the design behind shows like Carrot Plus in Antwerp, which takes place in May next month. And then there will be Gem Genève in Geneva a few days later, so in Switzerland. I think that's where that's where the industry is going. I think, you know, the people who actually back these shows are very well established dealers and they clearly want something else for their money, as John said. Yeah, my first uh, trade show in the diamond and jewelry space was actually Basel World in 2016. And it's like, wow, it was unbelievable. The size of the, the watch uh, company booths uh, are just incredible, something to be, behold. But it's very interesting that the poor diamond guys were, were, were shoved over to the side and are really kind of very much a, a, an afterthought. And that didn't go down too well. So I think uh, you're seeing a, a backlash against that now. And you're seeing people like Car Plus, like Jem Genève, actually uh, showing the diamond community and diamond industry that there are shows out there more focused on diamonds. And I think that's what you're seeing, that smaller shows pop up that are very focused on certain segments. And, and things like Basel World, I think, will remain a, an amazing watch show. But I think the, the diamond industry will come become less and less a part of that show. And uh, it, it's a very interesting uh, time for the trade show. But I do, I do believe that trade shows will remain a significant part of the industry. They'll just change and evolve. And I think they will become smaller and more focused. And you will still have JCK for sure um, and Hong Kong. Uh, but 
things will evolve and change and you're going to start seeing a lot more shows, uh, smaller, more focused shows, I believe. So we often talk about, you know, especially at these big shows, how the sentiment at those shows can can have an impact on the market in a larger way. And Joshua, do you think they can still have that impact or are they waning as time goes by? Well, I don't know what other people think, but uh, it seems to me that jewelry and diamond trade shows are very business to business. And it's very much about people in the industry going to meet other people in the industry. And I wonder whether maybe the way for them to have more impact um, would be to make them more accessible to consumers and make them more of an event that consumers might want to go to. I, I used to live in for a short while in, in Frankfurt and they have, a, they have a big trade fair centre. And I used to enjoy going to the, um, the book fair that they hold there every year. Uh, and loads of consumers go and maybe do or don't buy anything. But it becomes very much a focal point for the industry for the year. And I wonder what other people think about whether uh, some of these shows could be more consumer-focused. So that's interesting, because Jim Genev actually just recently, or not recently, but is planning on being open to consumers. And, of course, Baselworld is famously open to consumers. Sonia, do you think that opening to consumers is a strategy shows should start following? I think in the case of James Geneve, you know, they're really trying to target the high-end market. It's Geneva, after all. It's also taking place a few days before the Magnificent Jewels auctions at Sotheby's and Christie's. So it's been perfectly timed to actually attract the type of people who would go and maybe bid on uh, extremely expensive jewelry. So I think there's a, there's a target market as well for this type of things. But um, the smaller shows are obviously more attractive to consumers as well. They, you know, the display, the showcase, um, John was complaining about walking a lot. You know, Carrot Plus is smaller, so actually you can wear high heels and look elegant. No, I mean, I'm speaking by myself here. <laughs> but, <laughs> I only wear high heels at the weekends. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what I mean is like also they have a very uh, glamorous setting, the smaller shows. And that's why I think, I agree with Joshua, I think some of them are definitely... Uh, could potentially attract consumers as well. But I think we, here we're talking about the trade and the experience for the trade is better in these smaller shows. You know, I think you have more time to network, more time to socialize. So even before we speak about the consumers, just for the for the traders and the exhibitors. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And I don't think consumers, whether they are allowed into all shows or whatever, I don't think that's going to be the saving grace of, of the trade show as we know it. And I think you have to ask, like, what's the blame for this demise in the trade show? And I suppose, number one, there's a hell of a lot of them. So, and it's all, you know, what show should I go to? What show shouldn't I go to? But there's also, you know, do we blame the internet that we're living in a much more connected society? We live in a, uh, you know, a world of Skype, a world of RapNet, where you can buy diamonds on scene uh, with GIA certificates or whatever. So the world has changed. But I think Sonia hit on something very important there. What do trade shows offer that? the internet, that RapNet, that, um, you know, Skype can't match. And that's the face-to-face -face engagement. And I think these new shows like Car Plus, like Jem Genève, I think it's going to be very interesting to see, can they exploit the fact that they're smaller, more focused, you get a lot more FaceTime with people. 
you know, you, you get to know people much, much better. Go to JCK, you're meeting so many people, it's so big, it's very difficult to really build strong connections, I believe, at JCK. But I'm sure, you know, going to Car Plus, Gems, you never, and the smaller shows, you, you can build, you know, relationships that last a, a, a lifetime. And I think that's what shows need to focus on. Um, looking at engaging people, um, looking at, at building on that one-to-one personal relationships can be, that can develop there. And uh, I think there definitely is a future with these shows. I just think the big shows as we, we've seen them, especially shows like Basel World, will become less significant for the diamond industry with, with shows like Car Plus and Gem Genève taking their, their place. I think also something else interesting about the shows is... As you say, if, if a show looks too much like RapNet, it's just a dealer's show. It's just a bit of a, you know, a very direct experience like happened in Antwerp. Antwerp used to have a show every January organized at the Bourse of Antwerp. And uh, people were complaining a lot last year when I was at Carrot Plus. They said, you know, it's in cramped offices. It's, it's not a nice experience. Not so much business actually happened because people don't enjoy it. It's always the same boring old stuff. So I think, you know, that was the, the genius of the Carrot Plus organizers to say, let's bring something. We, we have glamorous, luxurious products. Let's showcase them and, and put them in, in the right environment. And I think that's why the show in January is, is not happening, didn't happen this year. And they actually joined forces with Carrot Plus because they saw that's the show of the future in terms of setting as well. So I still think that there is one thing that these big shows offer that smaller shows have uh, will have a hard time replicating, and that is providing a platform for major luminaries to come and give speeches, to have big events, town halls, and, you know, a variety of other presentations where major individuals and, and organizations are able to get up and really show that they have something, you know, to say and to tell the industry at large news and and advice that they can find useful. So, I mean, are we going to see those also disappear? No, I, I don't think anyone around this table is, you know, forecasting that we'll see trade shows or the big trade shows disappear. I think uh, some of them will downsize, um, but you're still going to have your big events like JCK, like the Hong Kong shows, and also Basel World will continue to thrive, but in a much more focused, uh, more dynamic and small way. So you'll still have your platforms for the big keynote speakers, um, you know, like uh, Avi Kravitz, uh, <laughs> who's talking at Car Plus, and he's also joining Sonia and I at JCK to give a talk. Um, but no, you'll still have your, your big uh, events. What we're saying, I think a lot of uh, diamond dealers and diamond companies are, are now being a little bit more shrewd rather than trying to go to every show. They're, they're being more selective. And some of them even told me that they'll stop exhibiting at the likes of uh, JCK or Baselworld, but they'll still go because of the networking opportunities. So I just think you're, you're um, when the industry gets a bit tight, people are looking at their bottom line a little bit more about return on investment. And people are just being a bit more savvy about what shows they go to, what shows they exhibit at. You know, so we're going to see changes like that but by no means we're going to see these big events disappear. I think also it's a status um, issue. I mean, we speak to a lot of dealers and a lot of time they say, oh, I don't really want to go to Hong Kong. Oh, I don't really want to go to JCK. But they're still going. They will still be there because they want the, the competitors to see them there because otherwise it means, you know, maybe their business is not doing so well. So I think that's still the, that's the attraction of the big shows that will carry on. Well, what could make jewelers and, and people in the industry say, yes, I do really want to go to these shows, though? I mean, it's it's a little nerve-wearing. Avi Kravitz is speaking, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Look, I think one thing that you'll see, 
you know, a change in people's appetite for trade shows and a little bit more positivity uh, regarding trade shows is more positivity in the market. We've had, you know, a nice, uh, I suppose, growth in terms of diamond prices over over the last uh, quarter. Um, And there's a little bit more strength coming into diamond prices. But that's off the back of a really disappointing two, three year period. Um, I remember looking at the Rappi graph that we publish and and seeing for the two years I was in Rappaport, uh, the lines just going down and down and down for 30 pointers, 50 pointers, one carat, two carat stones. And for the last quarter, I've actually seen those rise for the first time in, in most cases. So I think once people get a bit, bit more positive, money starts circulating a little bit more freely in the industry and the industry starts gaining a bit more traction. And, and look, with President Trump uh, initiating the tax cuts, that's going to have a positive impact. There's going to be a lot more disposable income, especially the, the high level type client. Uh, so that should have a, a have a bit of a bump. You know, On the other hand, we're going to have maybe a trade war with China and India. That's going to play out whatever way it plays out and we're going to see. But I do think... Uh, Uh, that the industry is getting momentum. So you'll start seeing people a little bit more positive in terms of spending the money to go to Hong Kong, spending the money to be at JCK to display their stones because they they will realise that the the industry becomes uh, a little bit more positive and sales start going up, that the potential to sell more stones uh, and goods is much higher, you know. And, And if they aren't at shows, there's always that thought of the opportunity cost. If I was there, I may have sold this or my competitors will sell stuff if I'm not there to sell people my goods. So I think once the market picks up and is more stable, I think we will see uh, the positivity towards trade shows definitely grow. So John and Sonia, I know you're both headed to Carrot Plus coming up next month. I'm going to Geneva, sorry. Ah, Geneva. <laughs> no, no, I was at Carrot Plus last year for the inaugural year and that was that I thought it was an excellent show but this year I'm heading to to Switzerland mm-hmm. <laughs> so are you excited I'm very excited because of the quality of the exhibitors the people who have really put their names behind the show it's also supported by the two auction houses Christie's will actually have a booth at Gem Geneve as well and uh, they're very excited because it brings this high level high-end customers uh, dealers to the city a few days before the auction so well, I'm going to have to disagree with Sonia totally. I think Car Plus is the show to attend. Uh, I would say that, of course, because Rappaport Magazine is a media partner for, for uh, Car Plus. And we do the have publisher Ab- is speaking. <laughs> and we do have Avi Kravitz uh, doing a, a, giving a pre- presentation. But I think it, it's wonderful. I think from Rappaport's point of view, I think the more shows, the more diversity, and we're very much pro um, you know, Car Plus as we are in Geneva. And I, I think once we saw the enthusiasm and be behind the organizers of uh, Car Plus and what they want to achieve. We definitely bought into that and, and we're more than happy to give them our support. But uh, yeah, no, I'm really excited. It'll be my first year at Car Plus and I'm really buzzed by it. And the fact as well that while JCK is amazing and it's huge, just the closeness and the, and the, you know, the opportunity to actually get good face time, to sit with people and get to know them over the, the three or so days of Car Plus, that's, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, I think we're looking forward to hearing reports from both of you when you get back. I'll bring back chocolate. <laughs> we'll, we'll compare the chocolate from Belgium and Switzerland, I think, when we come back. Is, I is think Avi, Belgium wins. <laughs> right, is, is Avi Carvet speaking at Carrot Plus this year? I believe he is. Ah, <laughs> Elizabeth Early is also attending. <laughs> Unrelated. Unrelated. <laughs> to Avi's presence. <laughs> I think. Are you sure? (laughs) So, you know, these shows still represent a 
great opportunity to talk about major trends in the industry. I mean, tech and blockchain have been recent, but I'm in 2016, Martin Rappaport gave a town hall on synthetics that really uh, brought a good conversation to the table. Yeah, I think these shows provide great opportunity to debate and to discuss you know, trends within the industry because there's just no way you would get the calibre of people in the industry all in the same room except for events like JCK. So I know at the the town hall uh, that Martin led about synthetics, it was just a really solid, robust debate, you know, the pros and cons of synthetic. And you had people on both sides, you know, really giving their heartfelt uh, opinions disagreeing, of course, be, uh, because, you know, this is a democracy and we're allowed to disagree. But it, it just really allows uh, those events, allows people in the industry to really dig in deep uh, on certain trends and to really understand um, them from a very ground level type of, uh, you know, viewpoint. So I think it's amazing. And that event, is, there's actually a video of that on diamonds.net. I'm sure we can make a link in the podcast in the description or whatever. But you know, it's really well worth uh, watching. And we had Stanley Zale uh, take part in it and other people. And it's even now, two years on, it's still relevant. And uh, it's interesting to see how, how things have developed since then. If you're looking for a way to push your craft to the next level, then it's time to check out the Rappaport magazine, Polish Your Knowledge Special Supplement. Sponsored by the International Institute of Diamond Grading and Research, IIDGR, the latest supplemental pamphlet from Rappaport delves deeply into the skills necessary to run a successful diamond business and how one can acquire them. It comes conveniently packaged with the April 2018 issue of Rappaport Magazine and is the perfect complement to the magazine's review of the industry's hottest topics. Subscribe now at diamonds.net slash subscribe to receive the Rappaport Priceless, Rappaport Magazine and Special Supplement to your mailbox today. Speaking of Stanley Zale, Joshua managed to sit down with the Vice President of Diamonds and Gemstones at Stoller to talk about synthetics. So we're, we're joined by Stanley Zale of Stoller. Stanley, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you today, Joshua? Very well, thank you. Are you ready for JCK Las Vegas? Uh, yes. We, we spend a lot of time here preparing for the show and we're gearing up and we're going to be ready. Always looking forward to it. Great. So uh, I'd like to ask about um, your business model, because you sell, if I understand correctly, both natural diamonds and laboratory-grown diamonds. Am I correct? And, and can you tell me a little bit about um, why it is that you, um, you went into selling laboratory-grown diamonds? Yes, that is correct. We've been selling lab-grown diamonds for a little over two years. And the reason we began to do it is very simple. We want to help our customers, the American retail jeweler, help them meet consumer demand. So when a customer comes into a jewelry store and they want to have a piece of jewelry, whether it would have a naturally mined diamond, a lab-grown diamond, a white sapphire, even a moissanite, we want to help our jewelers be successful and to meet that demand. It's just as simple as that. Mm. So going back to JCK from two years ago, from 2016, if I remember rightly, you were on a, a town hall debate with Martin Rappaport. 
discussing the question of lab-grown or synthetic diamonds. And a lot of interesting uh, questions came up there about, uh, about whether they're the future and, and, and how consumers perceive them. Uh, in, in those two years, how would you say that consumer perception of synthetic or lab-grown diamonds has changed? Uh, from what we can see, there's more acceptance of the product, I don't want to say across the board, but I guess there's awareness of mm -hmm. it spreads. What we see is more and more jewelers selling the product, and that is clearly a reflection of consumer demand. And some jewelers approach the product from the aspect of, uh, you know, that's ecologically friendly or, or maybe that there's, that there's a price advantage, which there is. Uh, regardless, uh, we see that increased demand reflected in the activity between us and, and the jewelers that we sell to. Mm. I believe you've just uh, launched uh, an interesting um, initiative to help you confirm that natural diamonds that you sell are really natural. Can you tell me what you've done, please? Yes, we're, we're very excited to announce this week uh, the best way to characterize it is a strategic service arrangement between Stoller and GIA. So we announced this week that GIA's Melly Analysis Service, uh, they now have a branch of that located here inside of our global headquarters in Lafayette, Louisiana. It is independently operated by GIA, GIA employees, and we're at a point where over 99% of the diamonds that pass through Stuller are being checked one way or another to determine that their origin is as we represent it to be. So GIA is here to give our customers the highest level of assurance that they're buying exactly what we say that they are buying. And is this just for melee diamonds? Yes, the GIA melee analysis service is for round diamonds from about a third of a point to about a quarter carat. And in addition to determining the origin of a diamond or whether or not it is even a diamond, because it will also sort out simulants like CZs, mm. it will also classify diamonds by color. So uh, with GIA support, we're able to let our customers know that the diamond that they're buying is of natural origin and it's been color graded by GIA as well. Mm. So up until now, what have you been doing to ensure that your natural diamonds and your lab-grown diamonds uh, remain separate? Well, we've been doing a lot. We started down this road on screening in 2012 when there was the news story of, I believe it was IGI Antwerp had several hundred diamonds submitted to the lab that turned out to be synthetic. So we mm. uh, began very simply with an HRDD screen to check every diamond that we had larger than a fifth of a carat. There wasn't the technology at the time to check smaller. Since then, we've been using an AMS machine from IIDGR, an AMS-2 also from IIDGR, that's the De Beers unit. That's automatic melee screening. Yes, for melee screening rounds, fancies, we use a IIDGR Phosphew that has some limitations, but we also developed an advanced gemological lab here. 
and we have uh, several advanced spectrometers, a Raman, an FTIR, a UV Vis, which gives us the same gemological capabilities as the independent labs, GIA, GCAL, etc. So how will um, your new collaboration with the GIA uh, help your business directly? Well, it's about product integrity. And that's the best way I can characterize it. Each of us in the industry have an obligation, frankly, to one another to correctly represent the product that we're selling. And we have a concern that there might be this inevitable story on 60 Minutes about undisclosed lab-grown diamonds. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to have a, a strict and vigilant quality assurance program and to have the highest level of assurance, again, that we are correctly representing the product that we're selling. It's our industry, and we all need to do right to uh, help it grow and move forward in the best way possible. Mm. What do your, uh, your retail clients, jewelers to which you supply, tell you about the type of questions that consumers are asking them about synthetic diamonds? Frankly, we don't get a lot of direct feedback like that through the jewelers. I think the ones that could best answer that question are the, the jewelers, the retail jewelers themselves. But it, it would presumably be in the interest of your business for the synthetic market in the U.S. to grow. Is that correct? It's in our interest, listen, for the, the jewelry industry to grow. And we're not taking a position that we favor one product over another. Again, what we're seeking to do is to help jewelers satisfy consumer demand. And as long as that demand isn't for anything that's illegal, then we're not here to make judgments as to how someone chooses to adorn themselves with a piece of jewelry. Mm, I see. We check media coverage of diamonds and jewelry on a more than a daily basis. And there's always coverage about lab-grown diamonds, at least once a week, it feels. Um, as they get more and more traction, uh, do you think we could see large, high-end jewelry brands, retail brands such as, say, Tiffany or Cartier, stocking uh, synthetic diamonds in the future? Well, <laughs> so anything's possible. Never say never. I would definitely leave that question for Tiffany Cartier and the others to answer that for themselves. I suppose anything is possible. Okay, great. So uh, JCK Las Vegas have got a, um, a sort of a sub, uh, sub show at their event this year dedicated to lab-grown diamonds. Will you be exhibiting there? Well, we'll be exhibiting at JCK, but not in that section. Yeah. It's simply, it's the stellar way to keep all of our products together. So when you come by the Stuller booth, and everyone's welcome, please do come by the Stuller booth, you'll find all the products that we sell. And we sell everything that the jeweler needs from loose diamonds and gemstones, finished jewelry, to tools and supplies for the bench jeweler. And we even sell the actual bench. So please come by and okay. take a look, and you'll see it all under one roof, so to speak. Okay, Stanley Zale of Stella, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Joshua, it was a okay. pleasure. Likewise, thank you very much. This podcast would not have been possible without the support of Rappaport Academy. 
Rappaport Academy launched just a few months ago, giving students the opportunity to learn all they need to know about the diamond industry. It's kind of like this podcast. But if the Rappaport Diamond Podcast has left you with a thirst for more knowledge about the diamond industry, go to rappaportacademy.com and sign up for the Fundamentals of Diamond Trading, your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. There's big news out of the Sotheby's Magnificent Jewels and Jadeite auction in Hong Kong this week. But probably the most startling news was the failure of several of the top jewelry lots to find buyers. Most notably in the diamond industry, a 14.18 carat fancy blue did not find a buyer. After years of incredibly strong prices for stones like this one, with records broken year after year, are we seeing a sea change in the auctions market? It's something that we've seen already in the auctions last year in Hong Kong specifically, actually blue diamonds, pink diamonds, especially blue diamonds, are not so much in favor. So these stones are really hyped up before the sales. I mean, they look beautiful. The ring looks beautiful. But when it comes to actually buying, it seems like the dealers are not getting it and not buying it. And um, I spoke to uh, Leibisch Polnauer, who's the president of Leibisch & Co. He's passionate about colored diamonds. And he actually sold the stone. He's the one who sold the stone 10 years ago. And he told me 10 years ago, he sold it for 2.4 million. It was also auctioned a year or two ago for between 3.8 to 4 million, and it didn't sell back then. And now when they put it again on the market, they expected something like over 6 million. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a significant appreciation in a fairly short time frame, really. Joshua, who buys these stones? It can be a range of people. Sometimes it's high net worth individuals in Asia. Sometimes it's dealers. Sometimes it's big retailers like um, Chow Tai Fook, who, uh, who've bought a few over the last couple of years. So, I mean, what other lots did we see at this auction, Sonia? Anything interesting? The Asian market is particularly fond of uh, gemstones. So the top lot was a ruby ring, a stunning ruby ring that sold for over $11 million. Usually Hong Kong is very big on uh, yellow diamonds. Fancy, intense yellow diamond rings sell well. Jadeite usually is a big, big seller, except that this year also Sotheby's had to pack back the cycle of heaven jade bracelet. That was a bangle that was really hyped up exactly as the blue diamond ring. I think um, it was a, sorry, I think it was a circle of heaven. Circle of heaven. And I called it the... the cycle of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just... The accent. <laughs> well, turn I'm just the... thinking of the Tour de France. <laughs> um, thanks, Joshua. So yeah, it was actually was a disappointing sell. I think there's no much, you know, to to gloss over. Sixty-one percent per lot sold at the at the auction, and I think it's just something the prices might not be not might be right. This, uh, in certain price category. Yeah, I think you're just seeing a bit of reality coming back into the fancy coloured, uh, you know, diamonds and, and gemstones market. You know, this market has just been going up and up and up and up. Every year there's new records broken. So, you know, I think the market is just a bit of self-correction happening now and a bit of reality needs to seep back in into people who are putting stones up for auction that every year isn't going to bring record-breaking prices. And, uh, you know, I think that that is a good thing uh, for the rest of the market as well. So, Joshua, you're sort of known as the uh, auction Nostradamus around the office. Do you have any predictions for the auction market? I'm not sure about that, but um, I was going to point out that I think some of this, the reality check that John mentioned has actually had an impact on 
some of the companies involved. And we posted a story today on Diamonds.net that the Grisagono are um, potentially making uh, 41 positions redundant. The Grisagono, they're the uh, company that cut the 160-something carat uh, emerald-shaped diamond D-Flawless that sold at Christie's Geneva last year. And they were very open, actually, in um, in what they said. They said that there's been a, a slump in the high-end luxury market and it's affected their cost base um, and it's affected their ability to operate. And they've had to make these significant cuts um, as a result. And they've actually said that they're, they're shifting to lower-end stuff now. They're going to um, move away from high jewellery, which was the area that was really suffering, and move towards day wear and lower-cost items for which there's a stronger market at the moment and they mentioned also that Basel World has seen strong demand for their more medium end watches. Is there an auctions market for medium end goods? There are many many strong houses in in a market actually when you look at the results you know the big houses have the, the big spectacular stones but smaller auction houses still prestigious like Bonhams, Fortuna, Philips uh, Philips actually being also a big, big auction house, but not on the scale of Sotheby's and Christie's. They actually, if you look at the percentage of sold per lot, very often Bonhams is doing very well, but it's, you know, it's in a fine jewelry market and they had extremely strong results last year. So we'll keep our eyes open and we're looking forward to hearing more results from the Christie's and Sotheby's auctions in New York and we'll have more information for you about it in the next show. So Joshua... Was there anything that caught your eye in the news this month? There's been a lot of uh, coverage of the potential trade war between the US and China, where the US uh, proposed $50 billion of tariffs on various Chinese products, and China retaliated by putting a similar amount of tariffs on US products. The relevance to our industry is probably minimal in terms of direct impact at the moment, because diamonds and jewellery are not among those industries that are affected. It seems that Donald Trump is more interested in, in protecting industries where the US manufactures a lot and China also exports a lot to the US, such as aircraft and aircraft parts and food. Diamonds is uh, unfortunately a bit of a minnow compared with those industries. So the people I've spoken to are not so worried that the diamond industry is about to collapse because of this. But... Uh, there may be a few peripheral impacts. It's reassuring to hear. And John, you were telling me something of a human interest story the other day. Yeah, it's always good to take time uh, to read about the stupidity of wealthy sports people. And uh, (laughs) what came up on the radar this week was the New Orleans Saints uh, quarterback, Drew Brees. And he is suing his jeweler after he bought $15 million worth of jewellery over, I think, about a four-year period or so. And he had it uh, reappraised, and it turns out it's worth $6 million, So he's not a happy camper. I, I think the very interesting thing about this lawsuit brings up three key issues that you know are core in, in our industry. And, and I think it uh, will be interesting to see how the court case actually uh, pans out. So the first one is an issue of trust between uh, the jeweler and their customers. Uh, the second one is purchasing jewellery as an investment. Most of these pieces of, of jewellery he was purchasing as an investment. And thirdly is the markups on jewellery. So he had bought um, a lot of pieces, but two stand out. And, and one of them was a blue diamond ring. 
So Bree bought this in 2012 for $8.18 million. Uh, he had it reappraised and it's worth $3.75 million now. He also bought uh, a pair of pink diamond earrings as an investment in 2015 for 975000 and they're just uh, worth now $176,000. So uh, you can understand why he's decided to take uh, action. Now, the jeweler's lawyer is coming out and saying, well, look, these were sold as an investment. They were sold as a 10 to 15 year investment. So they didn't, did not have time to fully appreciate in value. Now, that seems laughable. Not only did they not appreciate, they actually depreciated, uh, you know, substantially in value. But an interesting thing is the markup as well. If you look at some of these uh, things like the pink earrings, for example, had a 400% markup on them, you know, and, and this coming out in a court case will be very interesting how the public reacts about this. Now, doubling or tripling in terms of markups is, is quite normal in our industry. And obviously, jewelers put an awful lot of money invested in these products. They hold them for a long time. So they have to pay the bills, of course. But, uh, you, you know, it seems that this jeweler is really uh, pushing that markup to the extremes. And then there's trust and transparency uh, within the industry. Um, you, you know, the, the jeweler is fighting his corner saying, well, no, I was selling these as investments and investments are never sure thing. But uh, definitely this quarter pack, Mr. Drew Breeze wishes he drew more on the experience of uh, appraisers and got a second opinion when he was actually buying these uh, diamonds in the first place. I think we'll all look forward to hearing more about that case as it develops. So, John, thank you very much for uh, joining us and sharing your insight. Thank you, David. Joshua, as always, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. And thank you very much, Sonia. It was a pleasure. Thanks, David. It was great being here again. Thank you all for listening to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. If you enjoyed this and are looking for more diamond and jewelry industry news and information, check out the recently released Polish Your Knowledge Rappaport Special Supplement. Don't miss this month's issue of Rappaport Magazine, where the best brands on the internet are under review. And if you're looking for an edge to your diamond trading business, check out the Rappaport Research Report business intelligence for the diamond industry. For Sonia, John, Joshua, and the whole Rappaport team, thanks for joining us.